Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 2018 podcast. It's great to have you along. From talking to people who listen to the podcast, I've discovered that people tend to listen to it in different ways. There are some people who like to keep up to date and who listen to the new one pretty much as soon as it comes out. And then there are other people who kind of catch up. They collect together several that they haven't listened to and listen to them all in one go. It appears that some people like to sit down and uh, have a cup of tea or a coffee or a glass of wine or something and, and listen to it like that. And then there are other people who are doing something else and have got it on in the background and use it as like, almost like background chatter. However you actually get to listen to the podcast, can I just say thank you for doing it at all? Because quite frankly, sitting here talking to myself is not really what I like to do. Now, I'm recording this a week after I came back from the Blackpool Convention. I only spent a couple of days there. I went up on the Thursday sort of setup day, if you like, and I had a, a meeting to go to and one or two other things to do. And then I was there for half of the day on Friday before I had to come away. And I suppose old habits die hard. I found myself most of the time circulating around in the dealer room, speaking to people that I knew and doing one or two things that I needed to do. And uh, I spent some time up on the balcony looking down on the main sort of hall. And they've changed the layout this year, as if you went, you'll probably have realised. Instead of having rows of dealers going uh, across the narrow width, if you like, of the main ballroom, they had them going three long rows, going all the way down the room with all the tables sort of butted end to end. Uh, and I wondered whether that would would help. I don't know whether that this was entirely to do with the refurbishment that's going on there. It could be. But uh, it, I suppose in another way was a good thing to try to see whether it would help the traffic a little bit. Because when you when you look down from above, you can see how people are moving around and you can see that the, you do get traffic jams, as it were, when there's a popular stand and people can't get by. And the short... Um, if you like, rows across the room mean that there's less likely to be lots of those in one row, in one go, so you can find your way around more easily. With the long ones, you, it's a very long way to go all the way around if you simply can't get by. So on the other hand, though, you could say that, well, when somebody's standing in front of one dealer stand and then they move slightly to the left or the right, they'll come to the next one. And they get kind of passed from one to another. So in another way, it could be better for the dealers. Don't really know. Um I something that really struck me, however, looking down, as I say, on all the various stands was the quality of a lot of the dealer stands these days, how it is so much better than it used to be. I mean, 15 years ago, roughly, I was one of the first dealers who didn't just use the trestle tables that Blackpool Magicians Clubs gave you, but I brought my own particular setup. And these were dem units and display racks which were used in trade shows. And I bought them and brought them along in order to display my stuff. And the reason I did this was because every time I went to a lecture or I went to a convention, I wanted to have the same basic look, if you like. And I would know where everything could be placed so I knew where it was being displayed and how it was looking and so on. Uh, and I was one of the first ones to do this. These days, though, it's great to see that so many dealers are investing in the way that they look. And rather than just looking, the whole thing looking like some shambolic jumble sale, some of the stands are now extremely classy. I mean, the most obvious one this year was Vanishing Inks, which was a massive display, which actually arched right over one of the gangways. Um, I mean, you couldn't, doesn't matter where you were in the room, you could not avoid seeing the Vanishing Ink. And because they had 
um, sort of dem units on either side of their archway, if you like. So in other words, they had a presence in two rows. When you walked through their archway, you looked left or you looked right, you had demers uh, doing the, the, the stuff for Vanishing Ink. So that was very impressive. But there were a number of others too. Uh, Labco's was very nice. There were, there were several that were that were very good, I thought. And it was really great to see a much more professional attitude. And looking at the packaging as well, how much that has changed. When I first started all those years ago, 30-odd years ago, I was putting things in freezer bags and stapling the top. And now you see people with these specially made boxes and lovely graphics on everything. Um, The whole thing has much more... Uh, impact it has much more effect it looks so much nicer and i think it's great to see that magic is embracing the the technology in such a way that it can produce things whether it makes the magic any better whether it makes the products any better well you've only got to read the magic scene reviews uh, and you'll you'll see what we think of it but it, it is certainly i think great to see magic dealers really making an effort in their presentation to the customers now each year at blackpool Magic Scene likes, if at all possible, to release a new book. And this year we've just published a book called A Lifetime in Magic, which is um, the work of international mentalist and magician Devon Knight, who's based in the USA. And it's going to be, in fact, a trilogy of books, and Volume 1 has just been released. And in the beginning of this, Devon talks a little bit about his career so far, and in particular about in in his early days few decades ago when he was working under a pseudonym of Jason Michaels and how he um, had this act in which he portrayed himself as a genuine psychic and that this actually got him into a lot of trouble because of some of the things that he claimed that he could do uh, and which eventually it was revealed that he couldn't do. However, and he's very honest about that, uh, about how he explains how it all went wrong for him and the mistakes that he made. And it's, it's, it's actually a salutary lesson to anybody who thinks that they can claim that they are genuine at something. But one of the things that it does bring up is to do with headline predictions. Um, he's got a number of very good methods for headline predictions. And if done correctly, a headline prediction is a real reputation maker and can establish you as somebody that the press wants to talk to and who are who they they should be interested in. But the problem with a headline prediction is what is a suitable subject to make a headline prediction and the difficulty of controlling this, because if you make a headline prediction of, let's say, a dramatic incident such as a plane crash, then immediately the question is, well, if you're a so-called psychic, instead of just making money out of or, or, or some sort of show out of other people's disasters or the plane crash, why didn't you try and stop it? I mean, this, this is the, the, the trouble with claiming that you are genuine. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you, if you have a show coming up on a particular date and you decide to do a headline prediction, you need to, you apparently, you, well, you do, you send your prediction to somebody important. Maybe if you're doing a corporate event, then you send it to the, the managing director or whatever, saying he's to bring the parcel with him, not to open it or tamper with it and so on. But when you actually get to the uh, day of the show, when you have to show that your prediction was correct, then you are in to a certain extent a victim of whatever the news happens to be now you can choose things 
there are very major headlines and there are other headlines that you could perhaps choose instead. But if there is something very major that has has an unpleasant tone to it or something really disastrous or terrible, to choose that would clearly be a mistake, especially when you're using it just in the name of entertainment. But on the other hand, choosing a headline that says fireman saves cat from tree is hardly likely to get anybody very excited. And I've never really thought, because I've never done a headline prediction, so I've never been faced with this dilemma before. But I suddenly realised how difficult this could be. Try, you, you might get lucky and you might have something that is major news and um, which doesn't necessarily uh, have any upsetting element to it. Most big news, of course, does tend to its wars, deaths, murders and all the rest of it. I mean, it's fairly dreadful, the news. Uh, anybody who listens to the news a lot will come away profoundly depressed, I think. But nevertheless, um, you need to choose something and selecting the right headline, something that is important enough for everybody to know about it, but not so nasty that people are turned off by the fact that you've actually used it for your show, is quite a balancing act and something that I'm sure mentalists must spend a lot of time thinking about. In recent years, uh, Britain's Got Talent has produced some notable performances from magicians and, of course, some success too with both Richard Jones and Jamie Raven in recent times doing extremely well. And it's a, a show that is a wonderful showcase if that's the way that you want to go. And it's one that has been, of course, syndicated all over the world. Britain's Got Talent is just our one, of course, USA's Got Talent and so on. And uh, my attention was drawn to Asia's Got Talent and to a lady magician on that who really has taken a completely different approach. Because I think one of the problems that you can get is that all the magicians can end up being very similar. We have the advantage that if we fool the judges, they kind of sort of like that normally. And so that helps. But... There are other elements, too, that start to come into play. The more magicians take part in the shows, the more samey the whole thing can seem. And so this lady magician, who's called the Sacred Rihanna, she's taken a completely different approach and has a very, very stylized way of behaving that is, well, quite frankly, weird. If you watch it, you'll see what I mean. It's very unusual, and the audience on the particular show and the judges went totally doolally about the whole thing. They went nuts over it. They thought it was amazing. Uh, I'm not sure it, 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 it was that impressive, certainly from a magician's point of view looking at it. The stuff that she did, it was good, it was fine, but it, it, it wasn't groundbreaking. It wasn't that unusual, the actual effects that she was doing. But the way that she did it, it was it's hard to describe. You have to go and watch it. Look up Asia's Got Talent at the Sacred Rihanna uh, and you'll see what I mean. Um, she, she has a very individual approach, which makes you realise that, that how much presentation is often the key to success. If you can do something that is completely different or that really grabs people's attention then the actual magic itself, while important, and it still has to be done well and it still has to be fooling, suddenly you do realise how much it becomes the smaller element. Somebody else going on and doing what she did, but doing it fairly straight, I don't think they would have got anywhere. It just wouldn't have stood up. But because of the way she behaves is so bizarre and so odd, 
it, it was mesmeric to watch because and the judges were clearly completely taken in by this this way of performing so if you haven't seen this or you, you haven't heard of this before go and look it up on youtube uh, and see what you think and see whether you think it's it's a good way to present magic um, it's totally unique as far as i'm aware and um, i don't know how how long you could play this type of character once its novelty has worn off i suspect that it might simply become irritating to watch but at the moment for a program like Brit- uh, sorry asia's got talent where you're only having to do a number of very short segments then the novelty is still there and can still be used if you imagine i don't know whether she wants to do this whether she already does this but if she wanted to go and do a full evening show and the whole show was with her behaving like that not speaking hardly at all and and behaving the way she does i i think possibly it would be it wouldn't be that interesting but certainly for in the particular got talent series that she's been on she's done really really well with it so do go and have a look go onto youtube and see what you think with the internet being so much a part of everybody's lives these days, it's hard to imagine that there's any piece of information that isn't actually somewhere on the web. And we are all bombarded constantly, aren't we, by information about just about everything in our lives and things some things we don't want to know about and other things that we're really interested in. It's all there somewhere and it's thrust in our faces with uh, sickening regularity at times. But despite this fact, And you would certainly imagine that uh, because of all this information, we would all be totally up to date with our knowledge base, if you like. Despite this fact of the amount that's out there, how much of it actually sinks in and becomes fact and is actually correct? I mean, I can remember um, in my early days when I was first trying to promote myself as a magician when I was a teenager... And um, the local newspaper got to hear that I was an amateur magician. I was doing some shows. So they wanted to do an interview. They thought it'd be a nice local piece on a on a youngster up and coming doing magic. So they came around to see me and they took a photograph and they gave me an interview. And, and a little piece appeared in the newspaper. And when I read it, the number of mistakes that there were in it, things that I'd said that they had misinterpreted, spellings that they, well, just for my name for a start, they got that wrong. Uh, and other things which they'd completely misconstrued. So that the article itself, while, okay, 80% of it was accurate, there was 20% that was completely inaccurate one way or another. Well, these days, the same thing happens on the internet. You get people who are said to have died when, in fact, they haven't died. It's just that somebody thought they had. They blast it out because they want to be first with breaking news. They blast it out onto the, through Twitter or one of the other social media platforms. Everybody get on the, who follows them gets to hear about it. And before you know, and before anybody's actually checked, it becomes reality, which is very upsetting for the person concerned who has not died. And it's the same with lots of other things, too. I, I've had a couple of examples of this recently where somebody who said that um, they used to have um, the magazine that I'm associated with and um, but since I you know no longer did that magazine then um, they hadn't been able to have it and I said well no magic scene is still going and they said um, oh no 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 it finished and I, I had to stop having it and of course he was referring to magic magazine so there was a, a, a misconstrued, a misalignment of which magazine they were talking about. So that wasn't very good. And then other people have said, oh, I understand you've retired. No, I haven't retired. I've simply changed the way I deliver 
my products to customers. Now it's all by download, whereas before I was doing physical objects and mail ordering it. But I'm still there. I still I'm still coming up with ideas. I'm still marketing things. So that the fact that somebody has put it out there that I've retired, I'm no longer operating again. It's completely wrong. So when you see how these things develop into fact from fiction, it's hardly surprising, is it, that when we're trying to promote our shows, that the lay public takes a, can take a very long time to notice us in the same way that people who advertise in, in magic magazines for their products if they think that one advert is going to do bring in loads of sales, it's not. You need to be there consistently. You have to keep on. The customer has to keep on seeing you. So whether it's you promoting yourself uh, as a performer, whether it's a dealer promoting their products, to only take one or two adverts is never going to work. You have to be out there consistently so that people are touched by your publicity on a number of occasions. I think it's something like 17 to 20 times is an accepted norm that before people may respond. And so once you realise that, then you stop being disappointed when you, if, you, if perhaps you don't get instant success when you advertise your show. You have to realise it's a long game and that unless you are constantly changing your advert, putting, getting different ways, whether you're using PR, whether you're using... Um, different things such as newspapers magazines online content social media there are lots of different avenues that you can use these days you have to keep trying to use as many as are relevant to you as you can and keep on doing it year after year and it's only then that you even stand a chance of being successful and i think the trouble is that these days we expect everything to be instant instant gratification and publicity just doesn't work like that so when you're competing with your show with not only all the other magicians in, in the area, but also with all the other sort of advertising noise that is out there and that the general public are, are being bombarded with, you have to play the long game and have to realise that it may take a while to have an effect. When you're looking to put a new trick or routine into your act, it's tempting, isn't it, to only look at tricks that are normally associated with the type of show that you're doing. So... For instance, if you're a children's entertainer and you want a new children's routine, your first port of call is going to be going to a children's magic dealer or a magic dealer who sells children's effects. Now, the reason that dealers categorise magic, here's all the close-up tricks, here's all the card tricks perhaps, here's all the mentalism, here's all the stand-up stuff, here's the children's magic, is in order to help customers to really concentrate on things that may be totally relevant to them. But actually, these are not the only places that you can find magic, because magic can sometimes be transferable from one type of performance to another. And I, I find I've done this for years with my children's show, that um, although not all of my items in my children's show um, are from elsewhere, if you like, from other aspects of performance, some are. Some are close-up tricks, which I've added presentation to in order to make them into something that is suitable for children. So, for instance, I do a coin into bottle for kids. I do a torn and stored um, cigarette paper, although it's, you know, <laughs> not, not as a cigarette paper, but as a small piece of paper. Um, sponge balls. Th these are all close-up effects, which um, I've reformatted and put a presentation to it that is uh, suitable for children. And what I like about this is that 
it makes the magic itself usually the actual method is strong so if you're doing um, magic for a, a wide age range of children if you put something like the coin into bottle in the presentation will hopefully appeal to all the kids but particularly if you ham it up a little bit it, some of the um, younger ones will enjoy the presentation but the actual magic effect where in my case a signed coin goes into a bottle is very strong for older kids who get fooled by the trick itself so I, I always feel that you get the best of both worlds you get good strong magic and you get a presentation if you do it right that is suitable for the age range of the children that you're entertaining so it's not to say that um, children's effects can't be fooling, and some of them are, but sometimes they are a little bit simplistic. And while that is fine for preschool children, I think once they get to school and beyond, they are used to seeing these because they sit in front of the television and they watch Darren Brown and, and Dynamo and people like this. That they're, they're watching adult magic, actually. So they start to get, from a much earlier age, I think, get a, a level of sophistication in terms of what they like to see magically than, than kids ever did years ago. But it's not just children's shows. Um, we've seen occasions where um, illusions, stage illusions, have been scaled down and used as close-up show effects. You know, the sort of like the zigzag, whatever, Coke can or whatever it might be, which is a, a, a sort of tabletop trick, obviously comes from the original zigzag, Harbin zigzag, which was a stage illusion. Uh, and there are other examples where you can take a close-up trick and, and scale it up and make it into a cabaret trick or a, even a stage routine. It just depends on the size of the props, the type of presentation, and the and the nature of the trick itself, what the audience needs to see. In the case of children, I think it is a good idea to give them something to puzzle over. Um, and therefore, by selecting from other branches of magic, you can perhaps help with that. So uh, I think restricting yourself to just looking at one, if you like dealer decided group of tricks when you're trying to make a decision about what is suitable for the act that you need could well be a mistake try and look perhaps more broadly look at other areas of magic that you may not know much about perhaps look at um, cabaret tricks and think could would that make a good children's trick or look at a children's trick and say well it's it would that put can i put that if i change one or two things in this and change the presentation would it actually be okay for adults in a stand-up show, it could well be. And then you'll have something that's a bit different from what everybody else is offering when they do the same types of show. When you walk around a dealer hall, such as the one at Blackpool, and you look at the prices that these days are being charged for various products, do you think to yourself, gosh, everything seems so expensive? Because I, I do wonder how most of us evaluate when we look at a product, whether it's good value or sensible or fair value or not. For instance, if you have a great big bag full of props and it's quite expensive, do you think, well, I'm getting a lot of stuff, I get a lot of physical items for this, so it's great. Or if you get a, a, an item that is tiny and it costs you a £1,000 because it has some electronic wizardry inside it to enable you to do a mental effect, do you think, oh, yeah, but look what this enables me to do. You know, I'm only getting this little tiny bit here, but this is the effect that it allows me to create. This is amazing. Do you then think, well, that's good value? I mean, it could also be down to whether you're a prof professional performer or just a hobbyist. The professional, I think, tends to look at, or certainly that's how I would tend to do it, I would look at 
what effect will this trick allow me to do, and am I likely to use it? If I'm likely to use it on a regular basis, then I will take a view as to whether the price is being charged for it is justified, and normally it is. Anything that you use on a regular basis, almost whatever it costs, if it's a very good version of whatever it is that you're trying to do, then a pro will probably take it and use it. The, the the semi-pro or the amateur who only does very few shows or no proper shows, if you like, just, just the occasional performance, could look at the same thing and think, gosh, you know, 85 quid, I'm only going to use it two or three times. Then you suddenly you think, well, that's not very good value. Even though the idea could be utterly brilliant, they may take a view, well, in term, practical terms, I'm not going to get my money's worth out of this item because I just simply don't do enough shows. So you may say, well, that trick is expensive. The pro comes along and sees it because, oh, that's that's fine. That's good value. So it's kind of what we're going to use it for, isn't it? But do you value, for instance, uh, something physical more than you value an idea? Books and sometimes DVDs where they have multiple tricks can, for the, for the amount of money that you pay, be an absolute goldmine. They are tremendous value for money. You know, if you have a book that has, let's say, 30 items in it and you get two or three really good items from that that you can use in your show or that you just like performing, the cost of the book, even if it's 40 or 50 pounds, is justified because you've got several things from it. They have always said, haven't they, that books constitute the best value. But that's only if you value ideas. If you don't value ideas and you see a relatively thin book which has got, say, half a dozen absolutely brilliant ideas in it that are really strong, with really strong magical mentalism. If you see a book like that and somebody says it's £60, you might put it back. You think, well, it's, it's only got 30 pages in it. So you put it down, perhaps. There, you're, you're looking at, you're judging the book by its cover. You're looking at the book itself. And if physically, it's not a hardback or anything like that. You're comparing it to other hardback books. The costing the same. You're thinking, well... It doesn't seem good value. But what about the content? If the content, and I know it's hard to judge the content just from a flick through on a dealer stand, but nevertheless, if you look at the content and you think, well, actually, of those six things, three of those things I can use, that's only 20, if it was 60 pounds, that's only 20 pounds an item. I'm going to use these regularly in my shows. Wow, is that good value? There, there, you're looking at the value of an idea rather than a physical prop. Uh, and I think that ideas are often underrated and undervalued, but they shouldn't be because without great ideas, we just don't have magic. If you've been entertaining children for many years, have you noticed in the last five or six years a real downturn in the number of inquiries and the number of actually booking actual bookings that you're getting? Because it seems to me that in the last few years, the choice that parents have when organising something for their young offspring as a party has widened hugely. So many venues and uh, centres are now offering different experiences for kids. It used to be that basically when somebody was having a party, they thought party food, magician, maybe a disco if the kids were old enough. Uh, And that was in a village hall somewhere in somebody's house. And that was pretty much the sum total of it. And as children's entertainers, it was great because you were the accepted thing that people needed at a party. 
And so in a way, you didn't have to convince people that they needed a magician. You simply had to convince them that they needed you as that magician. But now it's not the case. There are so many different places that children can be taken. And people are, I think, have got bored or at least they think that it might be old fashioned to have a traditional party a lot of the time. And what they're doing is they're taking a smaller number of children to the zoo or they're going to having a, um, a football party in a sports centre or they're even just going to somewhere like McDonald's and just having a party. You know, it's not the same. And as a result of that, as magicians, it's much harder for us to perhaps convince people that what we offer is worthwhile. Now, there will always be people, hopefully, who want a traditional children's party or will want some entertainment of some for- form whether it be puppets, balloons, magic, that we can provide for them. But selling that has become more difficult uh, because of these all these extra choices. And what it means is, I think, we all have to up our game a little bit, maybe offer more, maybe be more competitive in, in, in terms of pricing, maybe, because you are now going to be priced in comparison to these other events and these other attractions that, that people can take their children to. And it can be a, a case, perhaps, where instead of being the norm, which I don't think we are anymore, we become the thing that people do when they've done all the others. Think, why haven't we done for it? Why don't we go? Why don't we have an old-fashioned party? We get a magician in, and you know, it may be that's the way we get our bookings in the future. Who knows? Well, if you're a children's entertainer, I hope your bookings haven't dropped. But I suspect that for most people, they probably have. Well, that's it. That's another podcast for you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the various things that I've chatted about. If you've been taking a break while listening to this, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm afraid you've got to go back to work now. Sorry about that. But hopefully uh, I will look forward to having your company again next month when we do it all over again. Have a good month. Bye for now.